talking this month about um, people uh, and, and going through the series on people regarding building the house. And our overarching theme for the year is, God, will you build your house? Because unless you build it, God, we're laboring in vain. We don't want to be trying to do church for the sake of doing church or build it in our own image or think that we have all the best ideas, but we want God to build it. And so we've humbly just asked God this year to lead us to, um, to really put it on our hearts what he has in store for us. And we're just trying to respond to that as we go. And in this month, we're looking at the idea of how God uses people in good and in bad situations, to work on our hearts to bring around what it looks like to follow Jesus in, uh, in everyday living. And so we've been following the life of Joseph because he's had lots of things going on in his life. And this is Joseph, not the, the um, father of Jesus or stepfather of Jesus, but Joseph in the Old Testament near the beginning of the Bible found in Genesis, his story uh, is the one we've been following, and it's been a great time to do that. And we're going to finish up that, that series today before we go into an Easter series next week. So how many of you heard the slap that was heard around the world? Anybody? Okay, so by your laughs, you know what I'm talking about, right? I just want to tell you right now, that is not allowed here. Okay? You are not allowed just to come from the audience and slap me. <laughs> If I say something that you don't like, if I make a joke about your husband golfing instead of being here, you can't come running up here and slapping me. Just, just setting it out there, all right? Today's message is going to address how to resolve these things, okay? Slapping doesn't, isn't one of them. In case you, you missed it, at the Oscars, actor Will Smith slapped the comedian, Chris Rock, who was hosting it and telling his jokes. He slapped it because the joke he made, um, Will Smith did not appreciate because it spoke about his, his wife's uh, condition with uh, alopecia of losing her hair, and he didn't like the joke. And so he, he went to beyond, uh, you know, pro- appropriate ways of, of expressing his displeasure. And then after he does that, what happens, right? You wait for it later that day, the next day. It always comes out on Twitter or on Instagram, doesn't it? The apology, right? The apology that speaks to using this as a learning moment, as, a, as an opportunity to grow as a person and, you know, learn about things, right? It, that, that's the apology that usually happens, Happens when politicians mess up, when actors mess up, when anybody in a, some type of celebrity status messes up, the apology that, that comes out usually leans that way of how they're going to use this opportunity to be a better person. It sounds an awful lot like when I was a kid, maybe you too, but when I was a kid, my mom would drag me by my ear to either a sibling or to a neighborhood kid and give me that stern look that said, say you're sorry, right? And there you are, and you don't really mean it, but you're like, sorry, you know, right? You know that. Well, if you haven't noticed, one of my ears is higher up than the other. I think I got dragged over to people quite a bit. She just kept pulling on the same ear, and now it just sits higher than the other. <laughs> but those apologies, right? They ring a little empty, don't they? You hear them, and they're sorry, and you're like, you didn't mean one second of that. You're just doing that because you're told to. Sorry about my mic here. All right. 
Hopefully it'll stay good. So those apologies, they ring a little empty. And I'm sure you've received apologies like that, but you've probably also maybe given a few like that. When on the receiving end, like I said, you know how hollow it feels, especially when it's more than just like, he stole my toy that I was playing with or things like that. But when it's a little bigger, you know, like the scenario with Will Smith, when it's bigger than that and you feel like it requires some weight to it, an apology like that, it's hollow. It lacks closure, lacks reconciliation. It may have calmed the waters of, of conflict, but it didn't resolve the offense. There's no redemption in that moment. Today, as we close our series on Joseph, we'll see that when we approach redemption and reconciliation the right way, in a God-purposed way, it can look completely different. Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your ultimate gift of redemption and reconciliation in our lives. And God, as we continue to try to figure out how to do that in our lives, I pray that as we look at Joseph in his full circle moment of being able to come back and, and uh, receive his brothers, as we look at that, I pray that, God, you will, you will give us lessons, you'll speak to our hearts. Holy Spirit, you will prompt us where we can grow in that area and even, uh, even provoke us to go and start reconciliation and redemption with those that, that we are distant from because of offense and because of a lack of, of coming back together to work it out. We just thank you uh, that you set the example for us with, uh, with your son to reconcile us to you. We pray that uh, we can find our way of working that out in our daily lives. Amen. All right, so in the four weeks, to catch you up, we've traveled around 20-some-odd years now when we get to the point we're talking about today. 22 years, approximately, of Joseph's life have been spent away from his family. And it's been, it's been quite a time for Joseph. Joseph knows the difference between having a dream and the wrong vision, the right dream, but the wrong vision. He had a dream of his brothers bowing down to him, but he thought it was supposed to be this ha-ha-ha moment because he was this favored son uh, by his, his mom, Rachel, and his dad, Israel or Jacob. He knows that integrity at this point is, isn't always rewarded, but in heaven, God notices and God records it. He understands that gifting the gifting that he has, it doesn't, it doesn't grow in the pot that it's planted in. It doesn't grow in Potiphar's place or in the jail or in Pharaoh's place. It grows in the soil that you allow the gift to be in. You see, Joseph, he was this favorite son, this favorite son with special status in his family. Then the situation changed drastically, and God begins to work on the character in his life so that it fits the gifts that he has. Joseph was favored and rises in Potiphar's house. He was favored and he rose in the prison. And when he's favored and he rose in Pharaoh's house, the king of Egypt. Now we arrive at this full circle moment for Joseph. This story that started with him and his brothers now comes to that meeting point again. And so whenever we speak of 
forgiveness and reconciliation and restitution, it's important to understand that it's not just this one moment thing or one thing, just, I'm sorry, I forgive you, and then it's all over. Each one of those things, forgiveness and reconciliation and restitution, have their own part to play in bringing back wholeness in relationship. See, we read in Genesis 41, 39 to 40, it says this, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as discerning and wise as you are. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only I as king will be greater than you. Joseph's been here before. It isn't different. He's seen it. He's been there with Potiphar. Potiphar said, everything in my house is under your control. Only I'm greater than you. He's been in there with the jailer, where the jailer said, you run the show, and I'm going to sit back and watch Netflix at my desk. He's been there before. See, success in God's kingdom is not defined by status. It's defined by how you serve others. And Joseph learned those lessons. So Joseph's character has been formed in all these personal crises that he's went through. He's learned that God is with him no matter the circumstances. And you could hear that in the songs that we were singing this morning, couldn't you? When you call on the names of Jesus. And when we just, we just make room for him and then we trust the peace that he's going to bring. Joseph learned those lessons. He learned humility, knowing that God is the one leading him, right? When he would say, who can interpret dreams? I can't interpret dreams, but it's God who gives us the interpretation. He learned humility in this. And so while the scale of the crisis that he's about to enter, the famine that's about to hit Egypt, he's ready because God has prepared him in his personal crises. See, this famine, it's not only in Egypt. It spreads through the whole region. And just like today in the geographical region, if you were to look on Google Maps and see Egypt, you'd see that it is right next to, really close to where Israel is now. And you'd know that in that whole region, all their, their agriculture and their, their, um, their, the weather systems would all affect each other the same. And so it was affecting all the neighboring countries around Egypt. And so as it did, Joseph's father, Jacob, who's also called Israel, he hears that there's grain in Egypt to buy. The people from other countries can come to Egypt and, and uh, buy grain. And so in Genesis 42, 1-4, we read this. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he, told his, he said to his sons, why do you keep looking at each other? Because there's nothing to do, no way to make food or anything like that where they were. Listen, he went on. I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, uh, with his brothers, for he thought something might happen to him. See, it's been, it's been, like I said, almost 22 years. And Jacob still bears the pain of believing that he is a lost son. And he can't stand to lose another son that Rachel had born to him. 
Joseph and Benjamin were the only two sons that Rachel had delivered to Jacob, and they had a special place in his heart. His other sons, they were there still bearing the shame of living out this lie which affects their parents and their family. Can you imagine that? Listening to your father say, I can't imagine losing another son the way I lost my last one to wild animals or to something like that, and knowing inside that you sold him to slavery. How that must have been eating away at them. Meanwhile, where's Joseph in this? He's in Egypt. And Joseph, through the wisdom given by God, has used the seven years of plenty that Egypt had to prepare them for the famine. There is food for all. See, Genesis 42, 6, 7, we read this. Joseph was in charge of the country. He sold grain to all its people. And then his brothers came and bowed before him with their faces to the ground. And when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the flood of memories and emotions that must have, ha- that must have come over Joseph in that moment? 22 years after they, s- they sold him into slavery, there they are before him. He had maybe three years leading up to and including his time with Potiphar, likely about 10 years in prison, and then seven years of plenty, and now they were two years into the famine. He would have been mixed with pain and anger, but also in there would be a sense of wonder as he sees the very first dream that God had given him fulfilled in that moment, his brother's bowing down to him. All while, he was on a journey completely different, completely on a different set of rails than what they were going through. We read in Genesis 41, 52, just to catch up on what Joseph was doing in that time, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, God has made me forget all my hardship and my whole family. And the second son he named Ephraim, and said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. See, Joseph had laid those dreams down. Joseph had, had put the past behind him, and he was trying to move on past that, the pain that his brothers had, had caused him, the affliction that he had gone through in Egypt. You can see that in the naming of his sons. He must not have been fully through that pain fully recovered from those things as he used the names of his sons to reflect what he was trying to do. Again, when there's no full redemption, how does one really move through it all? Joseph, he had let go of the dreams and his family, and he had come to try to have some type of contentment in his circumstances. And this is our first full circle moment that we see here. Destiny is about how God sees you, not how others see you or you see yourself. This has been a story about how God has been moving and how we see God and we see one another. Earlier, we saw that blinded by envy and jealousy, his brothers, they couldn't see him clearly. 
And with Joseph, his, his vision blurred by pride, he misjudges them. We saw that the Ishmaelites saw Joseph as a commodity as they sold him to the Egyptians. We see Potiphar's wife saw Joseph in a similar fashion as an object for her pleasure. How we see each other doesn't determine our destiny, but how God sees us determines our destiny. Not even how we see ourselves is our destiny or should our destiny be determined, but by how God sees us. At this moment, with his brothers bowing down before him, Joseph's brothers, they still, they don't recognize him. He probably has all of his Egyptian garb, and they would dress very differently than, than uh, Joseph's family would have in their, in their cultural circumstances. And that brings us to our second full circle moment. We can live a lie so long that we come to believe it is truth. Have you ever done that? Convinced yourself of something or, or spun yourself a, 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 like a line, you know, like this is just the way it has to be. This is just the way it has to be until you absolutely believe that when it's not what has to be, that there is another way. His brothers had done that. They'd given up hope that he was alive. Slavery would have been brutal at that time. Surely their pampered brother who never had to really go out and take care of the sheep or do anything, surely he was dead, they would have thought. These brothers had been liars the last time he knew them, committing to tell their father that he was dead. Joseph then, unknown to them, begins a series of challenges with them to see where they're truly at, to see where their honesty really was at this point. Genesis 42, 13 says, We, your servants, were 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no longer living. Their past haunting them. And Joseph may see this as some cathartic or uh, cathartic opportunity, working through past pain and hurt. And if we rewound the clock, uh, you know, 13, 15 years, we see Reuben, one of his brothers, intervening, trying to say, no, no, let's not, let's not kill him. You know, let's, let's, let's just put him in this pit for now, you know, and then being sold into slavery instead of them actually killing him. But here, and here we see in Genesis 42 later, Reuben replied, did I not tell you not to harm the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must account for his blood. But they didn't realize that Joseph understood them since there was an interpreter between them. And he turned away from them and wept. There's something powerful in what Reuben says. We must account. Accounting is keeping the records. It's integrity. And if done accurately and well, it builds truth and trust. When you account or take account of what you owe and pay it out, and as truth is revealed, what happens? But Joseph weeps. Perhaps he believed he was hated all these years by his family. But hearing Reuben speak the truth, it's a source of healing for Joseph. That they didn't hate him anymore, that they regretted their decision, that they look back on that decision with remorse. 
And as one reads the story, they might find it odd that Joseph is treating them this way. But Joseph is, is, is taking this, this path to, to try and really figure out where they are. And so he follows this way of, after listening to the report of their family, Joseph then accuses them of being spies. And they're, like, they're trying to insist that they're not spies. And then he insists that uh, one, of the, one, of the, one of the brothers can go back and bring the youngest brother to prove that they're actually telling the truth. And he would keep the rest of the brothers all in prison. And then he amends it to, to allow all the brothers to go, but one stay captive until they return with their youngest brother, Benjamin. And then he puts their payment of silver and travel provisions in, in with their allotment of grain that they were buying. And at first glance, you could think that he's getting revenge. He's imprisoning one of them, and he's setting them up for failure by putting all their money back into their bags that they had used to pay, and then he could accuse them of stealing and everything like that and take out revenge on them. But like I said, he's not just using his power over them. He's not trying to get revenge, but something much richer and amazing is taking place. You see, for there to be full healing, there needs to be a complete revealing. And Joseph is trying to discern or reveal how changed his brothers are. See, forgiveness should never be conditional. When you offer forgiveness, it shouldn't be, I'll forgive you if you. You just forgive without conditions. It's a step of freedom that you take for yourself. Yet reconciliation is always conditional. It's a step of healing each one of you truthfully takes. And Joseph has set his heart to forgiveness, but he wants to see how honest they will be when when the truth comes out, when they're caught. Can there be reconciliation? And so he places the silver in their grain. Will they keep it or will they confess? And when they ran out of grain, knowing that they have the silver in their bags and and they they were caught in the situation, Israel or Jacob, their father, wants them to go back to Egypt. Imagine that. Simeon, their brother, was in jail in Egypt. They brought all the food back and stayed there until it was all eaten and gone. They didn't go back and try to get their brother out. They didn't try to do anything. They just left him there, and they're like, what are we going to do? They just left him there until they were out of food, and their dad was like, go get some more food. And then it comes out you know, that they have, to bring Brent, they have to bring Benjamin. There's no other way. Joseph or Jacob first wouldn't let them until he finally relents and lets them take Benjamin because there's no other way to get food. There's no other way for them to survive. If they don't, they all die. It doesn't matter if, if Benjamin may have, they may take Benjamin and keep him. They're all going to be dead and, and it won't matter. So he says, fine, you can take him and go. And so when they return and are brought before Joseph, the answer uh, comes from the test he gives them. Genesis 43, 20 to 22, we read, they said, meaning the brothers, my Lord, we really did come down here the first time only to buy food. And when we came to the place where we were lodged for the night and opened our bags of grain, each one's silver was at the top of his bag. 
It was the full amount of our silver, and we have brought it back with us. We have brought back additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our bags. And so this first test he lays out for them, they pass. They're honest. They're showing integrity. And they, they, they uh, want to buy grain the right way. Joseph sees that they're willing to confess. He sees that there may be a chance at reconciliation. And Joseph has one more test for them. Upon sending them home, he plants his silver cup, his special cup that he would, he would have in Benjamin's bag, his brother's bag, along with their silver. And then he sent his servant to chase them down after they left and go through each one of their bags, claiming that someone had stolen his cup. And when they get to Benjamin, they find the cup. He wants to know, how will they treat Benjamin? Will they let him go into slavery? Will they, they let Joseph keep him captive and the rest of them go? And this is how Ju- Judah responds uh, one of Joseph's brothers responds to Joseph. He says this in Genesis 44, 32 to 34. He says, your servant became accountable to my father for the boy, saying, if I do not return him to you, I will always bear the guilt for sinning against you, my father. Now, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. Let him go back with his brothers, for how can I go back to my father without the boy? I could not bear to see the grief that would overwhelm my father. And Joseph hears in that moment a contrite and broken brother revealing who he is now. Joseph tells this not to his brother, Joseph. Judah tells this to an Egyptian ruler. He's not confessing to Joseph, his brother. He's confessing to to an Egyptian ruler. And he could not do this, which leads us to our full circle moment number three. What God allows is not to be confused with what he approves. Genesis 45, 48, and 14 to 15, we read this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. And they came near him. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here, because God sent me ahead of you to to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there will be five more years without plowing or harvesting. God sent me ahead of you to establish you as a remnant within the land and to keep you alive by great deliverance. Therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made a way, he made me a father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Then Joseph threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin wept on his shoulder, and Joseph kissed each of his brothers as he wept, and afterwards his brothers, brothers talked with him. What a story of redemption where there's forgiveness and reconciliation and restitution, and that equals redemption. See, redemption heals the pain. It doesn't remove the memory. Redemption will repurpose the experiences that you've had, but it won't excuse any injustice that you faced. 
Redemption requires everyone to take steps towards truth grounded in God's grace. Because in God's grace and truth, Joseph grows from the pit to the prison to the palace to being a provider. Because we see in Genesis 47 that Joseph provided for his father, his brothers, and all of his family's father's family with food for their dependence over the lifetime of the famine. God's future provision for the family of Jacob, of Israel, for the nation of Israel that it would become was always going to be through Joseph. After Joseph's father died, and while there seemed to, they seemed to be fully redeemed, there were still memories. They're still wondering of what's going to happen. Joseph's brothers are wondering, what will happen now that dad's dead? Will Joseph still be treating us nice now that, you know, the patriarch of the family isn't there to kind of keep us all aligned and together? Or is he going to, is he going to now say he can get his revenge now the dad's out of the picture and it's just us here? What's he going to do? Joseph shows the full extent of how God has healed and renewed him. Genesis 50, 19 to 20, we read this in response to their, their question and their fears. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. What they planned, the evil that they wove in their lives, God had a different plan. And he rewove their plan of evil and death into a plan of good and of salvation. Sin will always seek to rob you of tomorrow's provision today. God, though, through redemption, seeks to restore to you tomorrow's provision today. Using Joseph as a vehicle, the Bible tells the story of good and evil, sin and redemption. It was a reminder for Israel's descendants, for Joseph's sons, and the Bible invites you to look at all the chapters and the characters and reflect on your story and on your choices, on the offenses that you've had to you or the offenses that you've caused. Who are you becoming? Who you are becoming is directly connected to the choices that you're making. But your redemption story can be rewoven by God. So to close, I have four questions to ask you. How are you responding to what was planned to harm you? How do you respond to that? Even if you had a part in the evil that's being done to you, even if you made choices willingly that led to this place, how are you responding to it? Second question is this, how can you let God teach you and grow you through these pits and prisons? The third question, will you choose the path of redemption? Will you choose forgiveness and reconciliation and restitution, which lead to redemption? And the fourth question, if you wove harm for others, how can you work to bring redemption? 
in your family, with friends, coworkers, within our church family. Let's let God reweave our stories for good. As I close here, we have a beautiful testimony. Some of you will already know it, but uh, Andy and Noella Bouvier have recorded a short version of their story of being full circle of people, of seeing offense, terrible offense happen to them, and how God led them on a journey, a full circle journey to forgiveness, to reconciliation and redemption. Let's watch their story. <laughs> 